Discover the path to success in the golf industry with GBN University Podcast. Hosted by retired Colonel Spencer Kulat, PhD, this educational series delves into leadership, finance, merchandising, and more. Join us on the journey to greatness. Subscribe now for expert insights and strategies. Hey team, how you doing? Welcome back to Getting Better Now. I'm Spencer Kluot, your host, and I hope all's well for you and your families out there. Now, this is the second installment on interview with C.W. Canfield, fellow West Point graduate, a PGA professional, and director of golf at Lakeside Country Club. In this episode, we're diving deeper into the subject of leading through change and covering some critical considerations like performing good marginal cost-benefit analysis where not only do you do the marginal benefit, marginal cost, but you also understand that there's marginal value uncertainty there. And that, that's really the next step, the graduate level uh, that I think we all really need to get to. The best leaders out there see where the uncertainty is. They understand the quality of the information they have. And with that good cost benefit analysis, then they can make the best decisions out there. We'll also be uh, looking at how to gather your relevant information to aid in that sound decision making and gaining buy-in and Also, kind of a little glimpse into the neurological components of uh, successful leadership, which is getting better and better every day. The neuroeconomic side, just neuroscience in full is getting better and better each day. And it's going to continue to teach us a lot more about how we interact as human beings and and how we make decisions. Anyway, I hope you take away some useful tactics to implement in your own professional sphere of influence, as I surely did in this episode with my good friend, C.W. Canfield. Now... Listen and enjoy the last portion of our conversation. How long have you been in that job at Lakes? How long have you been there? So I've been the director of golf for nine years. Nine years. I, um, okay. Now, I was involved. I was managing a similar project in Georgia. This is my second okay. time doing this. Yeah, I was a young professional at the Ford Plantation. Now it's the Ford Field and River Club in it just south of Savannah, Georgia, a tranquil, um, non-assuming place, very quiet. But Pete Dye originally designed that golf course. And I'm the new pro. I'm 32 years old. Maybe I'm a young guy and, and I'm, I'm yeah. driving around property. And, and I'm thinking to myself, the greens look a little too round. And some of these sprinklers are a little too far away from the green edge. And I've seen Pete Dye golf courses. I've played Pete Dye golf. It doesn't seem like one. So I started a rhetoric and a communication with Mr. Dye and Mrs. Dye. Yeah. And it took several years and a new superintendent and leadership to the club. Finally, Mr. Dye came back to renovate that golf course. And there's there's a lot more to it than just that behind the scenes. But I was able to walk step for step with a Hall of Fame architect for those 18 months that we were in the process of delivering that golf course to the membership at Ford. And once again, it was a team and we learned some lessons there that really paid dividends here the second time around. It was a it was a neat process. So definitely not your first rodeo. And when they hired you nine years ago, was this was this in the books? Was this in the plan? Yes, it really was. We had aging infrastructure. When I came on board in 2014, the golf course was starting to age. And there, there was a there was actually a plan in place for the next couple of years to just redo the greens. Yeah. And, 
and now I opened my big mouth and and got the superintendent on board. I said, "We can do the greens, gentlemen, but your irrigation and your your fairways are a little thin. There's infrastructure failings. There, there's more here that we probably need to do." <laughs> At that point, we we started the process of building the master plan, building consensus, hiring a new architect. Uh, we we had a little hiccup with Hurricane Harvey that we maneuvered through yeah. that, that delayed the process for a while. And we could talk about those challenges and leadership challenges for another hour. But yeah. <laughs> ultimately, we brought through the architect, the master plan committee, myself, we, we brought all this information to the membership via town halls. And we started to communicate the why do we need to do this full master plan versus just redoing the greens and maybe redoing the the fairways infrastructure you start to build it up from the ground up and you have to once again articulate the why yeah people are gonna well what are you doing okay we're gonna we're gonna build three chipping greens well why do we need three chipping greens here's the activity and you know, I had a couple slides that I went over during the, the town hall meetings of, of escalation and growth. Here's where we started in 2014 with the teaching program. Here's yep. where we are now. Here are the number of kids that we had in 14. Here's where we are in 2021. So you can see these number of rounds, new members. So a lot of things that, that went into that decision. Once again, as a PGA pro, this podcast is trying to get getting better now. Yeah, I would challenge anybody and all of us to put your foot out there and lead and and try and inspire a, a membership to 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 get better and to do yeah. the best that they can possibly do with their facility. Inspire yeah. your staff to do the same thing. Let them dream and and yeah. listen to them and, and try and help them. So that, don't be afraid. Look, I'm a shy guy from a small town in West Virginia, but I'm passionate about golf. I'm passionate about leadership, and, and I'm passionate to try and help people get better. Yeah, and that can be my staff, my family, my entire membership. So, yeah, don't be afraid to step out there and, and be passionate. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I feel like that's a and a reason I was asking: Were you hired specifically for this? Retaining talent's hard. And I, I'm very impressed by the hiring committee that pulled you into this position and how it's played out really well. Like that, you don't see that all the time. So that that's a great decision. But when you walk into something like allocating so many resources and suffering the opportunity cost, here's a word for you. You remember this word, right? Like one of the right. opportunity costs is you're not playing golf here for the next year. What is that word? You got to put that in your calculus. Let me start thinking about this. And then marginally, you're thinking like, you said it earlier, I, you're doing 1,800 linear feet. I need 2,200 linear feet. So as an economist, we're always thinking like marginally, what does that next step bring? Does it get us to the top of that curve? Would it make more sense not to do just the greens, but now let's take on a bigger problem set? And then thinking about it as an allocation decision and including all the marginal costs and all the marginal benefits, but then having the courage to pull the trigger on it and say, all right, we're launching into this thing. And I'm wondering, you probably have plan B, plan C, plan D. You're probably like, all right, we're getting this done. And now, here, do you remember that moment? We're doing this. When that happened, everybody decided we're doing this. Yeah, absolutely. As a committee, it was our job to bring every option to the membership. Here's what 
can, can make the facility better for the next 30 years, right? Yeah. So lay it all out on the table. And we did that with the committee and massaged that and worked with the board of directors and finally found a product that we felt would sustain us for the next 30 years and move us forward operationally. In essence, with this many members, you, you need an avenue to spread out a little bit. Okay, We, yeah. have, we had one shipping grain. Now we have three, and, and they're of different functionality. One is a, a ground chipping green. You, you keep it along the ground. The other one has a middle-sized bunker with a smaller perched-up green, so it's a middle-sized um, shot. And then we have a, a perched-up green with a deep bunker, so we can hit all kinds of different shots. So we're spreading out with practice, and it's very important to us here. But we, we really decided that via the, the committee, and once you take this from the board to the membership, build consensus, explain the why. And at that point, you're susceptible to the member vote. Yeah. And it passed. Now, yeah. some, I went through this in Georgia too, Spencer. We had a, a few, I would call them naysayers. They didn't want to do anything to the golf course. It was just yeah. fine. And of course, we needed infrastructure work there. We needed architecture enhancements. We needed Mr. Dye to bring that golf course back to where he thought it needed to be. About halfway through the process, I'm doing tours and we're out there talking about the the Alps bunkers and we're talking about the the Redan hole on 17. And by the time that project ended, everybody was for it and nobody voted against it. (laughs) And and I think that's a a pattern that's probably copied across the country, but it's the same thing here. We we had a few folks that didn't want to didn't want to change that much, but for the long haul and for the greater good, right? As we learned in philosophy class at one point, the the, the greatest good principle. Yeah. Here's what that is. This master plan is the greatest good for the greatest number. And as we do tours out there and walk people through it and and express the architecture and and, and how to play the golf course, I don't think we have any no votes anymore. Yeah. You're building momentum, man. I don't know. This is, I am new to this. I am new to hearing the whole story. But I know leadership pedestals are built on multiple iterations of competency and vision and meeting expectations. And I think the mechanism of great leadership is probably the same mechanism of this thing we call love. I I swear, I tell my wife, my cadets always made fun of me. Sir, your wife must hate you. I'm like, listen, my wife and I understand the mechanisms of love, man. And I've got to meet her expectations every day. And if I do that every day over the long term, we can call that love. Now, we started dating in 88. And I'm telling you, we're in love. But we understand and we're not insecure in our love. I know that there's some expected outcomes that she has of me. And if I don't meet those, then I'm failing her. Now, I can do that over a week or so, but I got to get it right back to equilibrium. So (laughs) I believe the mechanisms of leadership, like somebody saw this in you in Georgia. And said, you know what? This guy's a good Mr. Next. And he's also a good Mr. Now. And I use those terms because, as you well know, somebody's got to be looking forward, but somebody's got to be executing the current strategy. And then to make that leap takes great vision and great leadership. You have proven yourself as a great Mr. Next and a great Mr. Now. So, well, yeah. That, that means a lot to me. Coming from you, Spencer, that means <laughs> a heck of a lot. Thank you. <laughs> I feel like these ideas are generalizable across all heck. I don't care what industry you're in and I don't care what sports you're in and I don't care what the problem set that's in front of you is. These ideas are applicable. 
I think. So what you're doing, these principles that I think have become something to live by that I just observationally look at and looking at the opportunity cost of not doing it now, looking at the marginal analysis that you're talking about, understanding the commitment and relative pricing mechanisms that exist within your organization, which is your culture, establishing the trade within the team, like taking advantage of specialization and comparative advantages. You don't want your superintendent making chicken salad sandwiches like you this. You're getting everybody in the right seat on the bus and then overseeing it all and being having the courage enough to receive the information. I believe just talking to you now after not seeing you for decades, there's great psychological safety with you. And what I mean by that is that people are willing to tell you the truth. And the truth is information that can help you make better decisions. I would ask you that, like, how do you collect your information for these tough decisions? I hear town hall. I hear you're outside. I I feel like you're walking the front lines and you're also in the boardroom. So what other techniques would you say to gather information that you use to make these decisions? This is the best way that I feel. If you you understand the, the left brain and the right brain a little bit, we're mostly left brain fellas for for the most part yeah and numbers help so i I can go in and and gather data gather numbers to then articulate the the why alluded to earlier here's the growth of the teaching programs here's the growth in rounds and oh by the way here's a video of activity from 4 to 5 p.m on any given day show some pictures give some visuals but you have to hit both sides of the brain you have to hit the left side and you have to hit the right side. And those are your compelling rationales on the right side and, and, and explaining the why. And then your left side are, are more numbers. So gathering that information to then present. And once again, that's all I can do is present the case. Then I have to live with the membership decision, right? Yeah. But but if your committee and your director of golf and your superintendent are all on the same sheet of music and, and we're speaking the same talking points, working through the same process, building that trust and cooperation, then it, it becomes much, much easier. It's once again, it, it goes right back to teamwork and, and yeah. passionate teammates can can get things across the, the threshold with the right articulation. Yeah. All right. I got two more. I got two more. And then I'm, a, I'm, I'm killing you on the time. I apologize. But this is some valuable stuff. Like you mentioned, which hurricane was it? Hurricane Hurricane Harvey. Harvey. Yep. And when you said that, I'm thinking one of the things about decisions and making these big allocation decisions specifically is how do you deal with the risk and uncertainty that's out there? And sometimes we know, just talking two sides of the brain, I know that there's a probability distribution function as to whether or not my drive is going down the fairway. Now, I'm working largely... I'm very uncertain. It's like a box of chocolates on my drive. Um, but there, I have a batting average of some sort, right? And, and there's some risk associated with that. I can mitigate that by how I line up or what clubs I use and the rest. But how do y'all deal? Like when you went off into this thing, what risk and uncertainty was there? How do you deal with that? Or even like the ambiguity, I think I categorize ambiguity as the hurricane is something you weren't planning on, but hit you. How do, how do you get through that? Sure. So, no, you're exactly right. We actually had project planned for 2017 and Hurricane Harvey hit two weeks before we were to spray the golf course. 
so that would have been a would have been somewhat catastrophic on two ends. We would have had to do the golf course when our clubhouse flooded. I had forty four inches of flood water in my office on the first floor. So we have a new clubhouse to say the <laughs> and we, we now have a new golf course. So yes, no way to really know it was going to be that bad. That's a thousand year flood, I guess you would call it that. Right. But to better prepare ourselves to, to mitigate risk, there are certain things that we did within the process of the project. Obviously, you have a contingency with any building that you would do. Golf course is is building. You're building infrastructure. You're building greens, fairways. So there's a contingency there. Now, what jumped up at us pretty quickly was the the inflation and how, how quickly that yeah. accelerated. Yeah, that, that's an yeah. economic factor that we didn't know. So we had to guess on some of the units and, and the schedule of values, and, and we guessed right on a couple, and we guessed wrong on a couple for aggregates. So, you know, we, we actually put in a little more contingency up front to help mitigate some of these risks. Now, there's always the risk of, of Mother Nature. Uh, too much rain. You can't dig any holes. You can't move mud. It has to be dirt. To, to make it pliable and to move it. So there's a risk there. But once again, you, you can't mitigate that other than just give yourself enough time in the project to to handle a certain amount of, of rain days. So, yeah, the risks are tough. They're more natural weather issues for the most part and, and economic issues that we didn't know about yeah. until they jumped up on us. The inflation is a lot like when you have bad information in a relationship, it's hard to make future decisions. If you don't know what future prices are going to be, it's hard to to establish contracts. And inflation does that to us where we we don't know less contracts are being made because we are unsure about the future pricing. Like you see this all the time, but that same thing happens in relationships too. And how I, man, I I know that's hard, but you're shouldering that risk and responsibility. And then how you treat folks in failure matters too. And I I know you, you're just built to do that. So you felt you have changed your identity. And I feel like when I say identity, I we started with, you mentioned your mom, your dad, your grandfather, your family. And I always ask people, like, how's your identity changed from young CW that went to West Point, you know, that plea versus now? And uh, almost talking to you this time, I want to know about the difference, but I almost feel like the more and more I, I'm in these conversations, I'm like, man, maybe it was a good identity from the start and he hasn't changed much at all. I don't know. How do you feel like, is your identity changed a lot or... Are you still the same seat up? You had it figured out at 18. Are you seeking executive talent for your premier golf facility? The partners at GBN have decades of executive search experience, recruiting the most accomplished leaders across the country. Our values drive every decision we make. We do what's right, always. With our extensive network, industry expertise, and diligent research, We'll find the perfect match to elevate your facility. Visit golfbusinessnetwork.com forward slash executive search today to learn more. It, I, I, honestly, Spencer, I feel like I'm, I'm the, the same kid I was when I was 17 years old. I, I'm trying not to grow up. <laughs> yeah. But may, maybe, maybe the change has been, I, I've always want to know why, or, or, or I'm driving to work this has been four, five, six years ago. I, I don't even know exactly what it was, but it, w- it was a moment I probably should have written down. But I'm, I'm driving to work and I hear on the radio coming up next. 
we're going to give you the secret to a long life. I'm like, I've got to hear that. I, I'll sit in the car <laughs> until that comes back. But they came back on and they said the, the um, studies show that the longevity hinges upon energy, empathy, and the ability to, to have calm. And I thought, that's pretty neat. I need to explore that a little bit more. And as I started to go back and, and take each one of those entities, I'm like, wow, that started at a young age. I didn't know what empathy was when I was 10, 15, 20, 30 years old. I knew there was empathy. I knew there was sympathy. And I probably wasn't great at, at the sympathy part, but I didn't understand empathy. I, I was doing it, just didn't know it. Yeah. The energy part, once again, I, I saw that my dad, my mom, the hardest working people that, that I've ever seen. So that yeah. energy was there. And then the, the calm part, I, I didn't probably get that from dad, but I got that from <laughs> mom as well. Yeah. And um, in, in the army, you have, you were there, you were in the army, you professed. Those cadets at West Point, your soldiers in the Army, they have 20 things that they have to accomplish, but they only have time for 15 of them. Yep. So you have to prioritize. But if you get out of a state of some sort of calm, then you might only get 10 of them finished. That's right. And to understand, and I like to go over this stuff with my staff too, self-awareness and the biological part of stress and how your body reacts to that. and happiness and endorphins and everything. We like to sit down as a staff and go over that stuff. So if I've changed it all, maybe it's a little more self-awareness, but I don't feel like I've changed much. Yeah. Dude, this is solid gold stuff right there. I, I really appreciate that. Yeah. It's really resilience. I, I, when you were talking about you know, to be able to work in a stressful environment, and to be able to get 15 of 20 done rather than 10 of 20 done, it's like you have to have been there. And God, when COVID hit up at West Point, you'll appreciate this. Maybe the rest of the audience won't, but they started talking about compassionate grading. I want to be empathetic to the kids who are having trouble, but I don't want to change the standard. Like we're here to build resilience, right? So I think me giving you more runway to feel sorry for yourself is probably not the right way to go. My motto has always been, don't feel sorry for yourself. And I chase that with, if you need sympathy and you have good teammates, they'll give it to you. And what my assumption has always been is exactly what you just said, that I have an empathetic person like you around me. And what I mean by that is me and you are slugging up a mountain somewhere with rucksacks on, and I'm carrying this tripod, and I'm telling you, when people ask, I'm like, no, I'm good, man. I'm good. I got the tripod. I'm good. I'm good. Until one, one step, I feel some my rucksack get lighter and CW has just removed the tripod from my rucksack. Like that is the true sign of empathy. Like not only I don't just recognize it, I'm here to remove some weight from you. And that's the sign of a great teammate. Like when you were just talking about it, ability to stay calm. It's easier to face risk and uncertainty if you feel like you're on that kind of team. Like if you have trust in your teammates, right? The hurricane, so hurricane hits. Ah, what are we doing? I'm on a good team. It's going to be all right. Like you're surrounded by 
And it's not a, like a sign of great leadership. Nobody says, oh, I want the most empathetic leader I can find. But it, it is a sign of strength in the individuals that are there. If they don't feel sorry for themselves, but they expect or they assume that their teammates will take care of them. Like, so I, that's really closing the gap for me that I hadn't really put together till this point. That's awesome, man. That's some solid goal right there. Awesome. <laughs> this interview went way different than what I expected. I don't know if I truly realized what you've been facing. And I won't leave you with the last word, but I believe keeping your house in order is important for deployments. And every deployment I've ever been on, we're going to ask these young soldiers to leave families and drive forward with us to wherever this country sends us. And we're going to execute this national defense and it's going to be in some life and death situations. And that's not always the case uh, for everyone. There are dangerous jobs out there, but I'm asking you to depart from your family to come to this thing that is, it can be a job, just regular work. And um, what I do want to hear from you is I want you, and I know you already know this, but like your wife and your boys, like how do you balance that? I'm, I'm thinking about the young PGA professional, and I've talked to a few of them now that are uh, trying to do this work-life balance. And, and I think it takes the house. It takes the whole family to get it done correctly. So how have you done that? How, what's your strategies to get that done? It's the toughest thing, and that's a moniker that we hear all the time, the work-life balance. Yeah. And I think, you know, when, when we go home, I, I feel that's the safe place, right? That's where I'm safe. I have a loving wife. I have three boys. Two are in college, and one's getting ready to, to head that way. I don't get to see them like I used to, obviously. So we, yeah. we have to family text, and, and a picture will jump up, and we'll all jump in, or a humorous picture or something. So staying connected, I think, is very important. But if, if you're going to go home and enjoy that balance, then you have to figure out how you're balancing work as well. You know, I'm, I'm here at work more than I'm at home. And that's what most all of us do, especially as PGA professionals, weekends, yeah. holidays. So that's why you have to have a team and you have to coach and, and lead and, and inspire your team to take care of one another. And if we take care of one another here at work, then it's going to feel like we're home. And this is more of a safe environment, an environment of care and cooperation, which leads to a culture of, of care and service to others. We care and serve our families. Yeah. We, we need to care and serve our members or our resort guests or what, whatever yeah. facility that, that we, we work at. So I think that work-life balance is important, but it takes work. Yeah. It's, it doesn't uh, just happen. You have your family staff, and then you have your family. And those, if you can get those in balance, then that's that's what we're striving to do. Yeah. Well, CW, I, I know the title is Getting Better Now, but I am better off now than, I, than whatever time ago we started this. And I really appreciate you taking time out and joining us, man, down this little pathway. I hope to see you again soon. I'm right here in South Louisiana. I hope to see you at some point here. My wife and I are traveling. Like you, our three kids, they're pretty much out of the doors. I've got time, and, and I hope to see you in the near future. But I'm going to leave you with the last words, man. And again, my, our greatest appreciation for you joining us today. Spencer, There's the door's always open here at the at Lakeside Country Club and at the house out in, in yeah. Katie's. The door is always open <laughs> for you. No, I tell you what, I learned a lot and I'm going to continue to learn a lot from you through these podcasts. You, the first one you did with Phil, I learned a lot of things about 
service and the smaller details that go into that. So what you're doing, I really appreciate. And I know all the members of the Golf Business Network are going to appreciate as as well. Thank you for the time. And I, I don't really know how to, to to close this down. I think I could keep talking to you for another few hours. <laughs> yeah, I'm learning a lot. Almost feel like I'm back in economics class that I'd, I'd forgotten all about, actually. But no, you're, you're a gem, and I appreciate that. But I, I do want to leave with with this uh, a, a big thank you. I, I thanked you, obviously, but big thank you to my family. My wife Sarah of 20, 25 years next year. I have a son Wilson in college. Uh, he's a senior at, at Sam Houston State. Mm-hmm. I have a freshman in college, Austin at Indiana. He's in at the Kelly Business School, and he's he's oh, thriving yeah. and doing well. And then my youngest, Harrison, looks like potentially we'll go to Texas Tech. So we're going to be spread out all over the country, as are you. And um, any tips that we might go offline and figure out how to stay more connected. But it's that support network. I still talk to my my mom and dad um, a lot and stay engaged with my family. And then thank my staff for for taking care of of business here in the shop when, when I'm outside a lot and handling what they handle. And, and thanking my membership for, for giving me the opportunity to, to lead and, and inspire to the best of my abilities to, to help make, make them better as, as well. So we're all in this to, to be better, and, and I'm, I'm trying to get better my, myself. So that's awesome, what it takes. Man. Awesome. And again, all our thanks, man. I will close it there. And I hope, I hope that, that the community benefits from this. And we'll, we'll see. We'll see. I'm sure there are some jewels, some real gems, some pearls, wisdom that will come out of this interview. So cheers, brother. Thank you. Good. Thanks a lot, Spencer. Wow. That's a lot to unpack in one episode. You know, CW offers so many great insights. And as a leader who I greatly admire, not only is he a great professional leader, Personally, his life is over the top. Uh, I think he's just done so well. So many great friends, such a great family. Uh, just says so much about CW and uh, how he's learned the rules of the game that he's playing every day, both professionally and personally, and how he's adjusting with the environment. How he shows that you know he has great humility and courage to accept good feedback. He seeks it out and he creates the uh, right psychological safety. Um, to go ahead and empower the, the most of his organization uh, who and, and new members all the time who are willing to come with him and he's willing to adjust. I think you see all that and his satisfaction with the job he's done and the relationships he's created, but you also see the performance that has come out of this. So he's not only a guy that uh, his family can be proud of, he's a guy that Lakeside Country Club can be proud of, and I'm sure they are happy to have him leading through that bit of change uh, over there at that great country club. So listen, don't forget to follow this podcast and turn on the notification bell so you don't miss any of the episodes soon to come for more of our top industry leaders. And remember, let's keep getting better now together. One episode at a time. I'll talk to you soon. Spencer Kluwat, signing out. Thank you for tuning into the GBN University podcast. Remember, greatness in the golf industry is within reach. Stay inspired, stay informed, and keep striving for excellence. Until next time, this is GBN University signing off. Don't forget to hit subscribe for more invaluable insights.